Amen. Uh, if you were looking for a luxury condo on the Gulf of Mexico about 15 years ago, your eye may have been caught by an advertisement for Ocean Tower. Ocean Tower, uh, they were going to build this on South Padre Island just off the coast of Texas. And according to the advertisement, the tower was going to be 31 stories tall, the, the tallest structure in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, these condos, 151 units, were going to be built Italian marble floors, granite countertops, oversized jacuzzi tubs. They were going to be the biggest condos in the best location on the island. So investors immediately started scooping them up. Okay, that was 2006. In 2008, uh, the uh, building was getting near completion when they noticed cracks in the foundation. So the engineers took a closer look and they discovered that the building had sunk 16 inches and it was still sinking. Uh, evidently, the inexperienced contractor had decided to lay the foundation on a bed of clay, the sort of clay that compresses when weight is on it, <laughs> like 55,000 tons of building weight. And so the investors were assured, no problem, we're going to fix this. In no time at all, you're going to be enjoying your beautiful condo overlooking a great view of the water, uh, but it was not to be. The building project was finally halted entirely, and then in 2009, they used a, an engineered implosion, a controlled implosion, to bring the building down. The largest engineered implosion of a concrete, a um, reinforced concrete structure in the world. Now, there's a moral to the story, okay? The moral is, if you want to build something beautiful, you better start with a trustworthy foundation, okay? If you want to build something beautiful in this life, start with a trustworthy foundation. Welcome to week one of a four-part series called Sexual Wholeness in a Broken World. So today, we're going to lay a foundation for a beautiful, God-honoring, life-enhancing view of sexuality. And without this foundation, our sexuality will lead to pain, confusion, frustration, relational conflict, addiction, possibly bodily harm, and even, listen to this, even alienation from God. So this is a really, really important topic now, if you've been around Christ Community Church for the last couple of months, you've heard us say that this ministry season from September through uh, next summer, every series is going to track with our, our church's daily Bible reading schedule called Bible Savvy, with the exception of one series, this one. Okay, we're doing one topical series this year. It's the series on sexuality because we consider this to be such a critical issue that Christ followers have to deal with these days. We, we live in a broken world with regard to sexuality. And so if we want to experience healing for our own brokenness, if we want to be able to come alongside and help those who are struggling with their brokenness, then we've got to hear what God says on this topic. So today we're going to launch this uh, sexual wholeness series by laying out three essential building blocks 
Three building blocks that lay a foundation upon which we can build our, our view, our approach to sexuality. And the three building blocks are authority, plausibility, and civility. So authority, plausibility, and civility. Let's start, number one, with authority. So when it comes to sexuality, who determines what's right versus wrong? Okay, when it comes to sexuality, who determines what's healthy versus harmful? Liberating versus enslaving? Who will be our authority? Well, there are three possibilities for you to choose from. Uh, some people choose self. So, so who's the final authority when it comes to my sexuality? In fact, uh, when it comes to any other area of my life, I am. Okay, I am. Now, we may not say that out loud, but that's how we roll. Uh, Sue and I like to read novels out loud to each other. And we just finished up this past week a book called Little Fires Everywhere. It was number one on the New York Times bestseller list a year or two ago, got made into a TV series now. And it's the story of a dysfunctional family living in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Uh, the teenage daughter, a girl named Lexi, she gets pregnant and decides to have an abortion. And afterwards, she is uh, mulling this over, disturbed by it. And she's kept it a secret from her parents, but she goes to confide in the mom of a close friend. And she asks the mom the question, do you think I did the right thing? And, and the mom responds, only you can decide that for yourself. Now think about that. Is that a good idea? You know, be your own authority when it comes to deciding what is right and what's wrong. <laughs> Wait a minute. You know, what about bias? What about your lack of objectivity? None of us is objective when it comes to our own lives, right? What about your tendency to give in to peer pressure and allow peers to lead you one way or another? You know, what, what about the fact that you live stuck in a particular time and you can't see where your decisions are going to lead with regard to the future? What about your blind spots? What, what about your tendency to justify bad behaviors? You know, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 5 says, lean not on your own understanding. Don't, don't lean on your own understanding. Later on in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 12, we read, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that appears to be right. If you're, you're deciding on your own, looks good, but in the end, it leads to death. By the way, you're gonna hear me mention a lot of Bible references today, typically, uh, when I'm preaching a sermon, I like to choose one text, and then we stay in that throughout the course of the sermon, drill down into it. Today, I'm going to be all over the Bible, so you want to just jot down these references and look them up on your own, perhaps, when you get home. So Proverbs 3, 5, Proverbs 14, 12. Not a good idea to be your own authority in matters of right and wrong, especially with regard to sexuality. So here's a second option. Society. Okay, just let the collective wisdom of your surrounding culture determine what is right and wrong in matters of sexuality. Trust the authority. Trust the authority of sociologists, peers, 
school teachers who teach sex ed, therapists, lawmakers, your favorite blogger, TikTokers, Oprah. Uh, you know, I mean, no individual gets it all right, but there is a general trend in our society at large, and if the majority of the population is going a certain way, that's surely got to be the right way. So just figure out what our culture has concluded about sex outside of marriage or what does our culture say about same-sex attraction or about gender transitioning or about a moderate viewing of porn or any number of sexual issues and we'll just go with the flow of the mainstream. Really. <laughs> Let me just recap what the flow of the mainstream has been at large over the last 50, 60 years. Okay, since 1960, America has doubled its divorce rate, tripled its teen suicide rate, quadrupled its violent crime rate, quintupled its prison population, sextupled out-of-wedlock births, and septupled the rate of couples living together before marriage, which studies show uh, demonstrates a greater likelihood of relational breakup down the road. Wow. I mean, with a track record like that, are you willing to trust society, majority opinion, to be your authority about anything? I mean, consider Jesus' warning in this regard. Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus says, Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. You want to take the popular route? You want to take what society is saying? Jesus says, let me tell you where that road leads. It leads to destruction. Let me offer a third option for authority in our lives. God. <laughs> now, the, the minute I say God, I know some of you are rolling your eyes and you're saying, yeah, yeah, that's what people say when they've kind of made up their own mind as to what's right and wrong, and then they blame their narrow view on God. See, God's kind of a trump card. So you just say, I follow God. And it's kind of end of conversation, right? Well, at Christ Community Church, we don't presume to speak for God. We let God speak for himself. And we believe that God has chosen to speak for himself in an amazing written source called the Bible. Now, I don't have the time today to tell you what I consider to be the evidence for this being a supernatural divine book, because we got to get to the topic of sexuality. But if you want to explore that further, like what is the evidence that this book is so special? I, I wrote a small, easy to read volume a few years ago called Foundation. And in Foundation, I answer questions like, well, how did God speak his word through human authors? And how did the 66 books of the Bible, written over 1,500 years, come together into one volume? How did they know what books to, to include and what books to exclude? You know, and how do we know that what was originally written didn't get corrupted over time of transmission, copied and copied and copied? So if you want the answers to those questions, I address them in that, in that book, Foundation. But today, we're just going to assume that this is God's holy word in which he has chosen to reveal himself to us as well as his will for our lives. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And we're going to put this up on the screen. Now, I want you to read this with me, even if you're watching at home right now. I want you to read this out loud. Here we go. All scripture is God-breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So all scripture is God-breathed, okay? God communicated what he wants, wanted said through human authors. And it's a book useful for several things, the verse says, the I-N-G words. You know, teaching, it lays out principles by which to live your life. Rebuking and correcting, okay? When you wander from God's path and you get in his word, it has a tendency to kick you in the pants and get you back on the right path. Okay, training in righteousness, it coaches you. says, this is the right way to live. So th this is why at Christ Community Church we say, you know, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You know, this is, how, this is how God exerts his authority in our lives. Notably in the area of sexuality, he speaks to us through his word. So if you reject this source of authority, then you're, you know, you're pretty much left with self or society. And I say, well, good luck. But I'll go with God's book, this book that has had an extraordinarily positive impact on millions of lives over hundreds of years. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a wide variety of Bible passages to see what God, what God has to say about a number of sexual issues. But today, I want to note in this opening point that I'm making here, I want to note what God says with authority, with authority about sexuality's purpose. Okay, what is sexuality's purpose? And we're going to go to the very beginning of the Bible. So if you brought one of these with you, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read about the creation of humans and see what this text says about God's purpose for sexuality. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Turn over one page to chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Drop down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So God is the creator of humans. God is the one who designed us as sexual beings. And that means, friends, that God knows best the purpose of our sexuality. And so if we use our, our sexuality in, in some other way for any other purpose than the one which God designed it for, we are bound to get ourselves into trouble. Now, years ago, back when I was a college student, I uh, worked for a couple of summers 
for a fuse factory. I worked in the laboratory that created special order fuses. There were four or five of us working in the laboratory of this place under the direction, the supervision of a cranky old dude named Freddie. And Freddie had a whole bunch of rules that we were supposed to follow. And the most important rule was never use a tool for a purpose other than the one it was designed for. Okay, you never use a tool other than uh, for the purpose it was designed for. So uh, one day I'm using Freddie's favorite screwdriver and I'm using it to pry something open, which by the way was not the purpose it was designed for. And as fate would have it, snap. And it was a loud snap, like all five or six heads in the lab turned and looked and there I was holding two parts of Freddie's screwdriver. Now, Freddie had an enormous vocabulary when it came to cuss words. <laughs> and so I knew, you know, I knew I was in trouble. I was doing the very thing he'd said, don't do. Don't use this tool for a purpose other than it was designed for. Now, that was just a screwdriver. Imagine, doing, imagine misusing a power tool. I read an article online recently about uh, the misuse of nail guns. Did you know that there are over 40,000 visits to the ER every year because of accidents with nail guns? But you didn't know that, but now you do, and you could bring that up at uh, holiday parties this year. Listen, friends, our sexuality is like a power tool. You know, use it for a purpose other than God, its designer, intended it for, and serious things are going to happen. So what's sexuality's God-designed purpose? I see a couple of very important purposes in the verses we just read in Genesis 1 and 2, and then I'm going to throw in a couple additional ones from other Bible passages for a total of four purposes. Okay, you ready? ready. Uh, yeah, thank you, all one of you. Are you ready? Good, good. Okay, first, first, God designed us with sexuality for the purpose of procreation. Okay, procreation. In other words, making babies, having children. I mean, go back to the, the closing line of Genesis 1, verse 27. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So God creates the first married couple. He creates a man and a woman. Why? Why a man and a woman in this marriage? Well, they have different bodies with different reproductive or organs. Why? So they can reproduce. Pretty obvious. Second, God designed us with sexuality for the purpose of permanent bonding. Okay, permanent bonding. When Adam first sees Eve... Look at verse 23. What does he say about her? He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Verse 24 continues. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So sexuality, you've heard me use this analogy before. It is like the superglue of a marriage. You know, for the purpose of permanent bonding. For the purpose of permanent bonding. That's why the Bible says that a marriage commitment is the only legitimate context for a sexual relationship. And that is so important. In fact, for the entire series we're going to be in over the next several weeks, I want to repeat it. 
You know, the Bible recognizes a marriage commitment as the only legitimate context for a sexual relationship. See, if you decide to sleep with other partners, maybe pre-marriage, in your teens, your 20s, or or maybe between marriages if you go through a a divorce later on in life, you you sleep with other partners, you, you bond, you super glue together, and then when the relationship breaks up, you tear tear apart and then you super glue with somebody else that you sleep with and you tear apart and you super glue and you tear apart and you and every time you do this you destroy a little part of yourself and a little part of the other person one footnote here the bible teaches that engaging in sex is you know it's more than an insignificant physical activity You know, it's an emotional activity, it's a psychological activity, it's a relational activity, it's a spiritual activity, it's a whole person activity. Okay, this is why the Bible says it's to be between a man and a woman who are are married because it's just permanently bonding. It's all of you. Nancy Piercy has written a, a brilliant book called Love Thy Body. In fact, over the last couple of years in anticipation of this series, I've probably read 20 to 30 books on sexuality, and this, this one happens to be in probably the top three, Love Thy Body. And in the book, she, she warns that there is an ancient heresy at work in our culture today uh, called Gnosticism. Okay, the Gnostics, from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know, the Gnostics believe that the uh, only important part of you is what's on the inside. It's your mind. Okay, your body doesn't really matter. What you do with your body doesn't matter. You know, if I were to use a contemporary analogy, they would probably say your body's like a rental car. All right, you're just kind of driving it around. You hit a pothole in a rental car, what do you say? Say, not my car, right? So that's how we treat our our, our bodies. What you do with your body doesn't matter. God's word says, no, no, you are are, are an integrated being. Your body is a critical part of how I've made you and who you are. This is why when you surrender your life to Jesus, the Bible says God's spirit comes to live in your body. Your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. This is why the Bible says at the end of this life, when they put you in the grave, if you're a follower of Jesus, one day he's going to return to planet Earth and he's going to resurrect your body and restore it. Okay, so, so the body matters a lot to God. What you do with your body is not insignificant. It's pretty important. You get it? Good. Here's a third reason God designed us with sexuality for the purpose of pleasure the purpose of pleasure now I'm not going to say much about this one because I assume you get it (laughs) but but I do want to point out that the Bible is not shy about describing the pleasures of sex between a husband and wife okay sex is the is the right context and 
marriage is the right context and in which sex is not dirty, it's not shameful, it's not bland, it shouldn't be mechanical, shouldn't be something that loses its appeal over time. It's supposed to be hot stuff. In fact, God has written an entire book of the Bible, included a book called Song of Songs in the Old Testament. Don't turn there now or I'll never get your attention back, all right? So, pleasure. Fourth, What's the purpose of sexuality? Picturing God's love for us. Now, I want you to note something really, really important here. Okay, the first three purposes of sexuality that I've just described, they apply to married couples only. Procreation, permanent bonding, pleasure. But what if you're single? Okay, well, what if you're divorced? What if you're widowed? What if you're same-sex attracted and you're refraining from marriage because God's word says, as we just saw, it's for a man and a woman? Or, or what if you are married, you know, but physical or relational problems within your marriage are undermining your sex life? So how is your sexuality of any benefit to you? What purpose does it serve in your life? Or is it like one of those foo-foo kitchen appliances that uh, somebody bought you for Christmas last year and you have no idea what to do with it? You've never used it. But listen to what Ed Shaw, author of the book, Purposeful Sexuality, listen to what he says. Okay, purposeful sexuality. He says the chief reason, the chief reason we have a God-given sexuality is to help us grasp the full passion of God's love for us, his people, and the horrific pain he feels when we walk away from him. If I were not a sexual being, Shaw continues, if I didn't feel sexual passion and pain, I wouldn't be able to feel the full intensity of God's passionate and painful love for me. Wow. Did you know that the Bible in both the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament speaks of God's love for us as being like the, God, like the love of a husband for a wife that he absolutely adores? In fact, the Apostle Paul gives this instruction to human husbands in Ephesians 5, verse 25. He says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, our sexuality, our desire for intimacy with somebody else, whether we're married or not married, as well as the brokenheartedness we feel when a romance goes south or breaks up, helps us to grasp God's great love for us. And it's a love that's a billion times stronger than anything we ever experience sexually in this life. By the way, God's love will only be fully enjoyed in an eternal new heaven and new earth that Jesus promises to those who surrender their lives to him. I mean, sexuality in this life, if I could use this analogy, sexuality is like the preview of coming attraction. Okay, so you, you watch a movie preview and your response is, oh, I can hardly wait till the movie comes out. See, and if you miss the preview, okay, it's not a big deal because the reality is the movie itself. Friend, the reality, what your sexuality points to is God's love for you that's gonna be fully experienced in a new heaven, a new earth. Wow, this is what God has in store for you.
Okay, we've been talking about authority. Who determines what's right and wrong when it comes to sexual expression? Who gets to say, this is the purpose for which sexuality is designed? Okay, this authority is not self. This authority is not society. This authority is God as he communicates through his word, the Bible. Number two, second word. Okay, took most of our time on the first word. This will go a little quicker now. Second word is plausibility. You say, great. What does it mean? (laughs) Well, plausibility. As we discover God's standards for sexuality in the Bible, we're, we're left asking ourselves the question, are these standards reasonable? Are they livable? Are they plausible? Okay, maybe God has set the bar so high that nobody could possibly clear it. And even if we could live according to God's sexual standards, wouldn't they suck all the excitement out of our lives? Wouldn't they make our lives miserable? You know, for example, God says that sex is to be reserved for marriage. So if you're a high school dude sitting here today or listening online and you're having sex with your girlfriend, you think, oh, great. You know, why should I give that up? Or, or, or let's say, let's pick another standard. Uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking hyperbolically, you know, exaggerating his point to get it across, he says, hey, if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out. Wow, this would mean no porn, right? So can I imagine a life without the freedom to take a little peek every once in a while at naked bodies? Or God's standard is, as we've already seen, for, for marriage is one man and one woman. Okay, if I'm a same-sex attracted guy, does this mean I don't get to settle down with some nice man and raise a family together? God's going to cheat me of that? You see where I'm going with this? Are God's sexual standards plausible? Well, for the next several weeks in this series, we're going to demonstrate the plausibility of living according to God's word. You know, the fact of the matter is, there are lots of things that God commands us to do in his holy word that sound very undoable initially. You know, love your enemies. How are you doing with that? Give generously to the poor. So when was the last check you wrote out in that regard? Okay, don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, Paul says in Ephesians 4.29. Set aside one day a week for worship and rest and don't let anything else come in the way of that. Are you kidding me? See, God's commands can sound pretty unreasonable at times. But the Bible tells us that God will not only give us the desire and the ability to obey them, he will also cause our, listen, he will cause our lives to flourish as we obey I mean, I love what Jesus says to those who will follow him in obedience. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Abundant life, some of the translations put it. Uh, Ed Shaw, the author I mentioned a moment ago, the guy who wrote the book Purposeful Sexuality, uh, he is a Christ follower who struggles with same-sex attraction. Uh, He's a pastor, actually. And so he has 
determined to stay single because he knows what God's word says about marriage being between a man and a woman. So has that wrecked his life? Okay, I want you to hear from Ed's lips what it's like to obey God in this regard. Take a look at this video. I'm a Christian. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm an uncle. I'm a cousin. I'm a nephew. I'm also a member of the church family at Emmanuel Bristol, uh, and I serve that church as their associate pastor. Why some people are same-sex attracted is a very hotly contested subject. There's books I read that tell me it's my fault, that one day I woke up and decided to uh, fancy some men. That's not true. There are some books that tell me it's my parents' fault, that my relationship with my parents is the big determining factor. That's not true. I have a great relationship with both my parents. There are other people that tell me it's my genes. No really scientific evidence for that. There are some people that tell me it's because I wasn't very good at uh, contact sports, that I can't see a ball, and that's why um, I'm same-sex attracted. Loads of theories. What is the answer? Why are some people same-sex attracted? I think the best answer is we just don't know. And some people are. Is it fair that I am? Well, I am, and God is good, and God has created me to be the person who I am. I can rage against that if I want to, but it isn't particularly constructive. What I can do is see the good that God's brought out of that and how he used it in my life and other people's lives to help me become more and more like Jesus, to help them become more and more like Jesus too. There's a huge amount of confusion over what terminology you use in this whole area of homosexuality. Do you say that you're gay? Uh, there's been language that's been used at different times in different places. We tend to use the language of same-sex attraction. We do that because um, the language I'm gay has so often been uh, used to signify that somebody is identifying themselves by their sexuality and that somebody's embraced a lifestyle that is an active homosexual lifestyle. We talk about experiencing same-sex attraction because it just includes more people and includes us. And certainly it's a sort of piece of language that's been used more and more by people in, within the gay community to just recognise that not everybody's happy with what has become quite political language of gayness. I think what I find so convincing uh, about what the Bible says about uh, sexuality and sex and marriage and homosexuality is that there's a consistent line all the way through, right from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. This is a really clear uh, stress on the fact that marriage is for life, that marriage is for a man and a woman, and that sex is just for marriage and shouldn't happen outside. And that happens in Genesis, but it happens all the way through the Bible. And the Bible was written into loads of different cultures, it, uh, it deals with a whole range of human experience, and yet it still has that clear and consistent line all the way through. And that's what really helps me be convinced that the Bible says that, that homosexual sex, that uh, sexual relationships between people of the same sex are wrong, because at no point, in no book, is there even a hint that that might be, that that might be right in God's sight, that might be permissible. So it's just the clarity of it all. And then there's also the fact that, you know, throughout human history, up until very recently, no Christians have ever taken any different line on the Bible. So all the great Christians that I respect and want to follow, whose books I read, have been really clear that marriage is for life between a man and a woman and that sex is for marriage. That would be true of some of the ancients that I like reading, like St Augustine or St Gregory. It would be true of some of the more recent authors that I love reading, like a G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis. It's only very, very recently that people have begun to change their minds. And the only reason I can see four people changing their mind is what's happening in society around us, not what the Bible says. I can live life without sex because sex isn't the only way for deep and meaningful relationships with other people. 
obviously it can be something that brings great depth and meaning to a relationship uh, between a man and woman and the Bible really encouraging of that. But the Bible's also really clear that deep and meaningful relationships happen in a whole range of contexts. So there are some wonderful friendships in the Bible which are really, really deep um, and really, really loving and really, really caring. David and Jonathan would be perhaps the most famous example of that. And I found that in my life, although I might not have somebody that I am sleeping with, I have loads of people who I have deep and meaningful relationships with that aren't sexual in any way, shape or form, but which provide me with the sort of people you need to have alongside you in life as a Christian, as a human being. There are times in life uh, when I do think and I do feel that my experience of same-sex attraction is unfair and that I do struggle with that. But actually increasingly I'm seeing the good that God has brought about in my life through my experience of same-sex attraction. It's helped me grasp his love for me. It's helped me grasp um, so much about uh, what it means to be open and honest with people. Sharing uh, my experience of same-sex attraction has deepened friendships, has allowed other people to be open and honest about what they experience and what they go through. It's been a really uh, great moment in our church's life for me to be open about this. It's encouraged other people to be open about what they're going through too. It's been a really, really positive thing. Um, it's one of the things that God has most used in my life to make me more and more like Jesus. And it's one of the things that God has most used in my life to help me point other people to Jesus too. And so there are bad days, but on the good days, I see with absolute clarity the good that God has brought out of my experience of same-sex attraction. And I'm really, on those days, grateful to him for it. Isn't that a powerful story? So Ed Shaw is a stellar example of the plausibility of obeying God, even with regard to his commands about sexuality. So we've looked at authority. We've looked at plausibility. Let me give you a third word, civility. Okay, civility. When we put this uh, series on the planning board, it was two years ago. And then we began to look for places to insert the series, and we kept squashing the notion because our culture has been going through a time of great anger and frustra frustration and contentiousness, and that's even seeped into churches. And we didn't want to raise one more issue that people with strong opinions would fuss and fume about. But eventually, we decided, you know, this is just too important a topic to ignore. We need to launch into it. So as we launch into it, let's make sure that we emphasize at the front end, civility. What's civility? Well, the synonyms in your thesaurus say politeness, graciousness, respect. Now, the Apostle Paul, he gives us a great description of civility in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you would, turn in your Bibles. I want you to look at this, this one on the page, Ephesians chapter 4. Let me give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background to the passage we're about to look at. Uh, Paul is writing to a group of Christ followers in the bustling city of Ephesus. And he's telling them how important it is for their pastors to teach them God's word. You know, negatively speaking, Paul says there are a lot of errors in our culture that you're going to fall prey to if you don't know the scripture. And, and positively speaking, he says the more you know the Bible, God's word, the more you're going to be able to live in a God-honoring way and you're going to be able to talk about these issues in your culture with civility, okay, in a way that leads to maturing in Christ. So take a look at verse 15. Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love, 
We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Now, two important words. I don't want you to miss. They're the flip sides of civility. Let me read the verse again and put an emphasis on those words. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Two important words. First word is truth. Second word is love. Truth and love. Now, the fact of the matter is most of us are characterized by one of these virtues more than the other. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not evenly balanced. Some of us are more truth people. You know, truth is very important to us. We want to know what the Bible, what God's word says about issues like sexuality. And we want to see that truth promoted. We will beat the drum for truth. Others of us are more love people. You know, we know that the Bible condemns certain sexual behaviors, but we also know people who practice those behaviors, and we want those people to understand how deeply God loves them and how we love them. So truth and love, love and truth, civility. Civility keeps them in balance. If we lean too far one direction or the other, we end up with a distorted and unbiblical view of sexuality. Vaughn Roberts, who has authored a book called Transgender, he, he calls this the, uh, the yuck or yes approach. He says, you know, if you're a truth-oriented person and you see behavior in somebody else that violates God's standards for sexuality, you may have a yuck response. Oh, that's disgusting. On the other hand, he said, if you're a love-oriented person and you see someone whose behavior violates God's clear sexual standards, you, you, you may be overly affirming and say yes to anything because who am I to say somebody else is wrong? Roberts doesn't want to settle for either extreme and neither should we. You know, civility calls for a balance of truth and, and love. Our truth, if you're a truth person, our truth needs to be more loving. And our love, if you're a love person, our love needs to be more truthful. So let me tell you quickly, and then we're going to close why each of these two elements is such, makes such an important contribution to this building block of civility. Okay, let me start with love. Why should we be loving toward those who violate God's standards with regard to some aspect of sexuality. I can immediately think of two good reasons to be loving. First, God has been loving to me, even though there's sexual brokenness in my life. God has been loving to me. Let me be really candid with you as we begin this series. We are all, we are all not only sinners, we are all sexual sinners in some way, shape, or form. We need to humbly acknowledge that. I mean, speaking personally, okay, when Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 28, anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, I've done that. Most guys I know who are straight, you've done that. So I'm toast, I'm broken, but I'm also loved 
by a God who has offered me forgiveness through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Second reason to grow in love as we talk about sexuality is that love draws people to Christ. See, people are not going to want anything to do with our Jesus if we're waving a finger of condemnation in their face. Now, it's okay to speak truthfully. We're going to get to that in, in just a moment. When we're, we're talking about what constitutes sin, we, we need to offer the truth, but it's got to be done in love. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to young Pastor Timothy, a mentoree of his. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Opponents, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Paul says, you want to lead people to the truth? Then try kindness, try gentleness. There's not a lot of that in our culture today. Oh, God help us that there would be more of that in the church and that we would go out into the culture with gentleness, with kindness, with love. But that love must be balanced by truth. Okay, once again, let me give you two reasons for this. First reason, with, without the truth, people won't see their need for a savior. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, the apostle Paul writes, he says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then Paul gives a list of sins, including a number of sexual sins, and he says, if you insist on, on persevering in these sins, okay, you're not gonna have any part in God's eternal kingdom. You say, oh, wait a second, Jesus welcomes sinners, absolutely. He welcomes sinners who are repentant, sinners who are willing to call their sins sin, sinners who, who come to him and say, would you forgive me and change me from the inside out? Second reason why truth is so important, and by, by the way, just footnote to that last point, you see why, you know, it's not loving to withhold this truth about sin's consequences from people. It's not loving to condone, condone behavior that's keeping people at arm's length from Jesus. It's got to be truth and love together. Second reason why truth is so important as we talk about sexuality. Christ followers are called to bring light to a dark world. Listen to this challenge again from the Apostle Paul. This is from Ephesians chapter 5. It's a portion of scripture that I've memorized because it's so, it's so important. Paul says, among you, there must not be even a hint, not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Now listen. But rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. So Christ followers are called to expose the darkness in their culture, especially the darkness of sexual immorality. Christ followers are called to be beacons of truth, the truth about God's standards, God's purposes for sexuality. But we're to shine this light 
in love. In love. And I hope throughout the course of this series, these four weeks, I hope that you understand what's being offered from this platform by people who love you. Because I love you guys. And if some of what we say from God's word stretches you, maybe makes you a bit uncomfortable, agitates you just a little bit, I hope you'll hear it as offered by those who are speaking in love. And I pray that God will stretch us and grow us throughout the course of this series. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for showing us how to live in a dark culture. And God, I pray that we would be characterized by truth and love. God, help us to submit to the authority of your word. Help us not to go through life thinking that we ourselves or our society is the best authority. Help us to bow in humility to your word. Help us to believe with all our hearts that what you call us to is plausible. It's not only doable, but it's how our lives will flourish. Convince us that you desire abundant life for us. And then help us as we go from this place to operate in civility in a world that's becoming more and more uncivil. Help us to to match our truth with love and our love with truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.